Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. Leon Trotsky, along with Lenin, was one of the main leaders of the Russian Revolution of 1917. He was also a prolific writer and Marxist theoretician, whose writings are a treasure trove for socialists today looking to fight against the capitalist system. In this talk, fightback activist Marco Lagrada discusses what Trotskyism is and why it's relevant today. So three years ago was the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And at the time, what you saw was an avalanche of opinion piece after opinion piece in the capitalist press, slandering that revolution and slandering in particular the leaders of that revolution. Now, it's not uncommon for Marxists to be attacked by capitalists as I'm sure many of you are aware of. Uh, in fact, you come to expect it, these attacks. But what's a bit more uncommon, or maybe I should say surprising, is when those Marxist leaders are attacked by those claiming themselves to be Marxists. And I'm alluding, of course, to the case of Leon Trotsky, who, along with Lenin, was one of the principal leaders of the Russian Revolution one of the great theoreticians of Marxism, and I would add also the individual who suffered more slander than maybe anyone else in the Marxist tradition. Now at the time of the Russian Revolution, Trotsky was accused of many things by the capitalists. He was accused of being a bloodthirsty military dictator. He was accused of being the architect of a Jewish conspiracy. But again, none of that's surprising coming from the capitalists. But what's maybe more surprising is there's a taxi here from the left, uh, and in particular the supporters of Joseph Stalin and of Mao Zedong, who have labeled Trotsky everything from a fascist to an imperialist, a counter revolutionary, a terrorist a German agent, a reformist, and the list can go on. And I have to say, it's quite the list of achievements, to be honest, that whatever your view of Trotsky, I think we can all agree that he was certainly a very busy man uh, when you read these kinds of lists. But what's more is that they found a single, all-encompassing term to encompass all of these horrible things that they ascribe to this man. And of course, that term is Trotskyism, which is the subje subject of our discussion tonight. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the strength of these anti-Trotskyist groups, because if we're being honest, they carry on a very marginal existence in society, uh, particularly in North America. And generally speaking, when you do encounter them, it's often online. It's not all that common that you encounter these types in the real world if we're being entirely honest. 
But historically, these groups, these, we would say, Stalinist groups, uh, did have a certain sway in the labor movement and inside the socialist movement. And for decades, acted as a barrier, preventing thousands of honest young revolutionaries from acquainting themselves with the profound ideas of Leon Trotsky. And these ideas, while they're not as strong today, still, I think you can say, lingers in our movement. It's a lot like if you were to let out some gas inside of a Soviet space station and the smell lingered in that space station for the next 100 years. It's a bit like that. Uh, that's the closest, closest analogy I can think of. Now, I've been given really a very difficult task, which is to explain in 40 minutes or so the real legacy of Trotsky, his ideas, and hopefully to explain and to refute some of the lies which have been told about him. But before I start, I just want to address one point, and that's this question of, well, what's the point in discussing Trotsky? After all, the man's been dead now for 80 years, and maybe it's possible that for some of you listening, you've already reached your conclusions about Trotsky, that you feel there's nothing good to learn from the writings of Leon Trotsky. And to that, I would reply with just a few basic facts, uh, facts which I don't think are controversial, that this was the man who during the 1905 revolution in Russia was leader of the Petrograd Soviet which was the Workers' Council which led that revolution, who in 1917 played the decisive role in the October insurrection, something that was recognized, by the way, by Stalin, who during the Russian Civil War built the Red Army almost single-handedly and served as its leader for an uninterrupted seven years, who after 1919 drafted all of the most important documents and manifestos for the Communist International, which is the highest authority in the international communist movement. And the man who just before Lenin's death was recognized by him as the most able man, to use Lenin's words, in the Bolshevik leadership. So to say that the ideas of Trotsky are not worth an examination or to just dismiss him with a few childish insults, I think does a great disservice to our movement, if I'm being honest. Since who we're dealing with at the end of the day is again one of the principal leaders of the Russian Revolution, which in my opinion was the single greatest event in human history. And that fact alone warrants an appraisal, and I would say an honest appraisal, of Trotsky and his ideas. So this is what I'd like to try to do in the short amount of time I have. Now I feel the best place to start is with the Russian Revolution itself. Now of course this isn't the place to go into detail uh, in the Russian Revolution. There's so much that can be said. But needless to say, this was the first time in history that the workers and peasants of a country had taken up arms against the landlords, against the capitalists, and scored a decisive victory. And at the head of this revolution was, of course, the Bolshevik party. And at the head of the Bolshevik party 
stood two undisputed leaders, that being, of course, Lenin and Trotsky. And if there's any doubt, uh, and uh, you know, uh, about the validity of that claim, I'd encourage you to take out a library card, go into the newspaper archives, and pull out any newspaper from the time of the Russian Revolution. Because what you'll find is that in almost every country, without exception, the Bolshevik party was universally recognized as the party of Lenin and Trotsky. In fact, it's said that in some parts of the Russian countryside, that there were some peasants who thought that Lenin and Trotsky were a single man because of how often their names were used together in the press. Now, Trotsky is true, uh, was not a member of the Bolshevik party at the start of 1917, although he did share the politics of the Bolshevik party. But when Trotsky did finally join in July, he was immediately brought on to the Bolshevik leadership and went on to play a decisive role in the October insurrection. And this was something, as I mentioned, that Stalin himself recognized. In fact, I actually have here a quote from Stalin. This is written in 1918, where he says the following about Trotsky's role in the insurrection. He says, All the work of practical organization of the insurrection was conducted under the immediate leadership of the chairman of the Petrograd Soviet, Trotsky. It is possible to declare with certainty that the swift passing of the garrison to the side of the Soviet and the bold execution of the work of the military revolutionary committee, the party owes principally and above all to comrade Trotsky. And I'll say it's not often that I agree with Stalin, but I have to say in this particular text, I couldn't put it better myself. And again, these were the lines uh, of the gravedigger of the revolution, the ultimate opponent of Trotsky himself. Now Stalin, for his part, actually played quite a minimal role in the October insurrection. And indeed, for much of the revolution itself, Stalin played quite a minimal role. And I think one of the best proofs of this is the famous book, Ten Days That Shook the World, by the American journalist and socialist John Reed, a book which is considered one of the best accounts of the Russian Revolution, and a book which was personally recommended by Lenin. But this book, interestingly enough, was actually banned for many years in the Soviet Union under Stalin. And the reason being that Stalin was only mentioned twice in the entire book, whereas Lenin and Trotsky were repeated uh, and mentioned almost every few pages. Uh, in other words, Stalin wasn't worth mentioning in the eyes of John Reed. And again, the truth is that Stalin was virtually uh, an unknown entity in 1917. And it wasn't really until much later that you see this fiction created of Stalin's preeminence in the Russian Revolution. Now, in the early days, the Russian Revolution took on an incredibly vibrant and an incredibly democratic character, both through the Soviets, which is just the Russian word for workers' councils, as well as in the Bolshevik party itself. In fact, it's, uh, it was said that even during the darkest days of the civil war in Russia, that there were lively debates that took place inside 
the Bolshevik Party, that no one ever felt afraid as a member of the Bolshevik Party to criticize its leadership, to raise a different point of view. And like I said, this was the case even during the darkest days of the Russian Civil War. And it was this democratic character, I would say, which was one of the hallmarks of the Bolshevik Party. But now the revolution wasn't free of danger because Russia it was a very backwards country. And it was widely understood throughout the whole of the Bolshevik Party that in order for the revolution to succeed, it would need to spread to other countries, in particular the more advanced capitalist countries, and in particular Germany, which would have been able to support Russia through its advanced technique and through its advanced industry. And while there was actually a German revolution in 1918, it was tragically betrayed by the social democratic leadership in that country, which left the Soviet Union essentially isolated. And after this, the Soviet Republic entered into a new stage where you saw a deepening of the civil war. You saw an economic blockade imposed by most of the world's major powers. You saw a collapse of industry, a collapse of the railways. And most importantly of all, you saw the absolute decimation of the working class, which was the bedrock of the Bolshevik party, mainly because they were the first to lay their lives on the line to fight in the Red Army. Until finally in 1921, the Bolsheviks were forced to take a strategic retreat uh, and introduce what was known as the New Economic Policy, or the NEP, which allowed temporarily the existence of capitalist relations in the countryside primarily. So by the early 1920s, essentially the situation that you have is of a country which is isolated, uh, a weakening of the working class. They were either dead or they were dead tired. And importantly, a strengthening of petty bourgeois elements, rich peasants and merchants, uh, largely as a result of the policies uh, of the NEP. Now this also led to a change in the Bolshevik party itself. That by the early 1920s, what you saw was a massive influx into the Bolshevik party. But it's important to point out that this wasn't the same party as existed in 1917. That many of those who joined the Bolshevik party in this period were those petty bourgeois elements that I mentioned. Many of whom former state officials, merchants, small proprietors, former reformists, members of the Menshevik and SR parties, all of these types flooded into the party in the early 1920s, with the end result being that what you had was essentially a watering down of that working class layer within the party, which, like I said, had served as the bedrock for the Bolshevik party uh, in the year of the revolution. And Trotsky wrote at the time, about how the dual power that was being built up in society and the class differentiation that was building up in society would at a certain stage be reflected within the Bolshevik party itself. And on this point, I think Trotsky was proven absolutely correct. Because in this environment, what you had was a bureaucratic layer which began to form inside of the Bolshevik party and inside the country at large, many of whom, by the way, played no role whatsoever 
in the October Revolution. And if they did, it was very often on the other side of the barricades, fighting against the workers in 1917. And if you were to summarize the view of this bureaucracy within the country, it was essentially to put a stop to the revolution, the storm and stresses of revolution, and to try and eke out a stable life uh, for themselves. And now this bureaucracy also had to find support uh, within the Bolshevik leadership, and it did uh, primarily in the figure of Joseph Stalin. Although I should add, it wasn't only Stalin. Uh, as Marxists, we don't just reduce our view of Stalinism to, well, Stalin was a bad man, Stalin ruined everything, uh, which I would argue is a very shallow view of history, uh, even if Stalin did play a large role. But the fact is, is that there was a tiredness setting in among a very wide layer of the Bolshevik leadership at this time and especially the older layers of the party, which was succumbing to this pessimism, succumbing to this exhaustion, which was something that the bureaucracy was then able to take advantage of. Uh, this is actually why Lenin used to joke that any revolutionary over the age of 50, he said, should be put to death. Uh, of course, it was a joke. Lenin himself was very old. Uh, but it showed that Lenin understood this process that was taking place inside of the Bolshevik party. And at a certain stage, this process also started to reflect itself in the policies of the Bolshevik party, with the continuing of capitalist policies, and importantly, the suppression of internal democracy within the party, which, like I said, was always a hallmark of the Bolshevik party, including during the Civil War. And it's worth noting that just before he died, Lenin preoccupied himself and spent his final days on earth fighting vigorously against these tendencies, very often alongside Trotsky. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out, and I think quite telling, that in one of Lenin's final letters, he talks of the breaking off of relations, comradely relations, with Stalin who we identified correctly as being at the center of these developments within the country and within the party. Now, while this was happening, there was a layer within the party that was looking to continue Lenin's fight against these tendencies and to essentially maintain the revolutionary course that was being abandoned by much of the Bolshevik leadership. And this was primarily uh, the left opposition uh, around Leon Trotsky. Now, the initial program of the left opposition contained two main proposals. One was for a program of industrialization, which included five-year plans, something that was later copied by Stalin, but carried out in an ultra-left way. Uh, and this was done primarily to help allay the problems in the countryside and to provide the peasantry with cheap goods. And the second item was for a restoration of internal democracy within the Bolshevik party. And I think this is well summarized in the slogan of the left opposition, uh, which went like this. They said, against the merchant, against the rich peasant, against the bureaucrat, 
which I think sums up the views of the left opposition quite well. And at the start, the left opposition uh, did have a certain base of support within the country, uh, including in Moscow, where they're particularly strong, in the Young Communist League, and particularly within the army, um, which again is no surprise given Trotsky's role as leader of the Red Army. Now, the left opposition described the situation in the country as a period of Thermidor. And Thermidor uh, is a term that was taken from the French Revolution, essentially to describe the period of counter-revolution uh, in the epoch of the, of the great French Revolution of the late 1700s. And now this was taken as an insult by Stalin and the others, uh, but the term actually had a precise meaning when it was used. That the Thermidorians of the French Revolution were actually still Jacobins, and the Jacobins were essentially the Bolsheviks of the Great French Revolution. But they represented a certain exhausted layer within the Jacobin organization, and a layer that wanted to bring an end to the storm and stresses uh, of the early revolutionary period. And again, I think the comparison is entirely apt, um, although there are differences. Now, it goes without saying that the ideas of the left opposition posed an incredible threat to the growing bureaucracy within the Soviet Union. But it also posed a threat to a layer within the Bolshevik leadership that had begun moving, as I said, in a rightward direction. And not only that, but a layer which felt personally humiliated uh, when Lenin, in one of his final letters, referred to Trotsky as the most able man on the Bolshevik Central Committee. So they decided essentially to play dirty. And what you had was a, essentially a pact which was formed between Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev, all of whom were leading members of the party, uh, which then launched a campaign to discredit Trotsky by digging up uh, past disagreements, primarily between him and Lenin, and disagreements which I'll add, had lost all practical significance after 1917. And this isn't uh, supposition, by the way. In fact, this was later admitted by Zinoviev and Kamenev themselves when they broke with Stalin in the mid-1920s. They admitted to the engineering of this campaign. And I'll add that these actions uh, went directly against uh, one of the final requests of Lenin, which was that Trotsky's past should not be used against him. Um, and actually, to quote Lenin, uh, he made the point that since Trotsky had joined the Bolshevik party, he said, quote, there'd been no better Bolshevik. Uh, so it makes it perfectly clear uh, why Lenin would say this. But then how did they justify this campaign? Well, they did so by calling it a struggle against Trotskyist deviations, uh, Trotskyist mistakes, the crimes of Trotskyism, and so on. Uh, which, by the way, is a term uh, which Zinoviev himself later admitted, uh, which he had invented for the explicit purpose of slandering Trotsky and pushing him out of the party. And again, that's not supposition, but a statement from the man uh, who created the term himself. Now, uh, and as, a, as an aside, it's worth noting uh, 
that none of the alleged mistakes and crimes of Trotsky were actually invented by Stalin. Uh, like I mentioned, Zinoviev had invented the term Trotskyism. Uh, while many of the theoretical arguments against Trotsky came from Bukharin, who was another leading member of the Bolshevik party, and both of whom, it's worth noting, were later shot themselves by Stalin. And Stalin, for his part, actually rarely took up an independent political position, which is why it's actually quite hard to find writings from Stalin prior to the 1920s. Stalin was more so the type, the cunning type, I would say, who would sort of wait in the wings to see which side was winning. And then once it was clear who was winning, step in to further his own aims. Uh, this is very much uh, in the psychology of Stalin. Now, as for the uh, alleged crimes of Trotskyism, I can really only scratch the surface in this presentation. Because what you have to bear in mind is that Stalin had at his disposal the entire apparatus of the Soviet Union, which was able to pump out lie after lie, day after day, such that it would probably take a hundred Marxist universities to answer them all. You know, there was a saying that Lenin was quite fond of that he mentioned often. He said that an ignorant man can ask more questions than a hundred wise men can answer. And I think it's worth taking the advice of Lenin in this respect, that it's not going to be possible to answer them all. But I think it is worth looking at some of the key accusations, some of the key points raised in relation to Trotsky and some of the arguments you sometimes hear today. Now the first deals with Trotsky's biography. Essentially the accusation that before 1917 Trotsky was a Menshevik and the Mensheviks were essentially the reformists in the Russian Revolution. And of course the implication here being that Trotsky had never abandoned those politics, that a reformist he was and a reformist he remained, even as a member of the Bolshevik party. Now, I have a few things to say about this. First off, it says more about Lenin than it does Trotsky. If he would knowingly allow a known reformist into his party, and not only that, but to just a few days later, bring this reformist on to the leadership of the Bolshevik party. It doesn't seem like quite an intelligent thing to do on Lenin's part. But of course, Lenin did not bring a reformist onto the Bolshevik leadership because I would say that accusation is decidedly false and I think can be quite easily disproven. Now, it is true that Trotsky did initially side with the Mensheviks uh, when they separated with the Bolsheviks in 1903. Before this, they existed essentially as part of the same party, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. But there's a few points to raise here to make sense of this. The first is that the 1903 split was not over political issues, but was actually over much smaller organisational issues, namely who was to sit on the editorial board of the party newspaper, and secondly, the admission requirements. For new members. Those were the questions that led to the dispute in 1903. And the Bolsheviks being for much tighter requirements, 
and the Mensheviks who wanted a much looser formulation. And if there's any doubt about this, actually I took the liberty last summer of reading, and I have it here, the full minutes of the 1903 Congress. It's about 500 pages, it's verbatim, what was said. And I would challenge anyone who disputes what was decided, what was discussed at the 1903 Congress. You can come over to my house, we'll read this book together, and you can point out to me where exactly Trotsky takes a reformist position. Although I don't, I don't think you'll be able to find it. Uh, but I would encourage people to, to read those minutes uh, if they have any questions or any doubts about this. Um, but secondly, uh, is that the overwhelming majority of the party was opposed to the split in 1903. Didn't understand why a split had taken place in fact. And so in some ways, Trotsky was in a way reflecting the mood of the rank and file of the Russian social democracy since what he wanted to avoid above all was a split in the party and thirdly and I would say most importantly is that the moment the Mensheviks started to move in a rightward direction uh, namely the supporting of the liberals in Russia Trotsky broke decisively with the Mensheviks and actually this broke uh, this break took place publicly as early as 1904 which was just a year after the 1903 split. And from that time on, Trotsky remained organizationally independent of both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. But crucially, on every key political issue, he shared the view of the Bolshevik party. And again, this can be quite easily proven. I have just a few examples. In 1905, so this was only two years after the 1903 split, Trotsky wrote probably the most important resolution for the Bolshevik Congress, uh, which was uh, on the question of the armed insurrection. That was written by Trotsky and again can be proven quite easily and found quite easily. During the First World War, Trotsky was one of the few revolutionaries, not just in Russia but in the world, to maintain a firm opposition to the imperialist war, which is something that Lenin publicly applauded him for at the time. And finally, in 1917, which was without a doubt the most decisive year uh, of the revolution, Trotsky arrived at virtually the same conclusion as Lenin in relation to the tasks of the Russian Revolution, namely the calling of handing power to the working class. And this was at a time when Lenin was in a minority in his own party, but he shared the view of Trotsky. And independently of each other, I might add, there was no correspondence at the time between Lenin and Trotsky. They were leaving both in exile, but fundamentally came to the same exact conclusions as to uh, the tasks. And as a matter of fact, the disagreements between Lenin and the other Bolshevik leaders were far greater at this time than anything separating Lenin and Trotsky. On the one hand, you had Stalin and Kamenev, who at the start of 1917 were the editors of the party newspaper, Pravda, and took up a position of critical support for the bourgeois provisional government that had been set up after the February Revolution, something which Lenin vigorously opposed and denounced when he returned to Russia in April of 1917. 
On the other hand, and this is far more serious, uh, there was Zinoviev and Kamenev, who not only opposed the October insurrection, but took it so far as to go against the wishes of the party and to announce the October insurrection in the bourgeois newspapers, which was something for which Lenin actually called for the expulsion of Zinoviev and Kamenev. Actually, in private and in correspondence with Bolshevik leaders, he referred to them as blacklegs or scabs, which I think was an appropriate term uh, given the severity of their actions. And these mistakes, I might add, of all of these individuals were not on small organizational questions as it was in 1903, but on the most fundamental political questions of the Russian Revolution. And this is crucial to understand. The simple truth is that in 1917, the most decisive year of the Russian Revolution, Lenin and Trotsky stood closer together politically than anyone else. And then, again, that includes uh, the leadership of the Bolshevik Party. And it was for that reason alone that Lenin brought Trotsky onto the Bolshevik leadership in July. And I should add that Trotsky later admitted that he was wrong on the questions of 1903 and that Lenin was correct. So he admitted to his mistakes. Uh, while the other Bolshevik leaders, Stalin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, who had made far more serious mistakes, uh, never apologized and in fact attempted to erase this history uh, from the books. And to be honest, I find it quite silly, this argument that, well, because Trotsky wasn't a member of the party before 1917, uh, he couldn't be trusted. He wasn't a Bolshevik at heart. And it speaks, in my opinion, to a, a poor method, and actually a method that's really foreign to Marxism, that doesn't recognize change in individuals. And I'll give just another example of this to help illustrate the point. Uh, Franz Mary, uh, which is a name that some of you might be familiar with. It was certainly uh, a very well-known name at the time. Now, Franz Mehring was, at the start of the 1900s, uh, considered one of the great figures of German Marxism, right there alongside people like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. And his works are still studied today. In fact, in my opinion, he has maybe the greatest biography written about Karl Marx, which I highly recommend people read if you can ever get your hands on a copy. But the thing with Franz Mehring is that actually for much of his life, uh, he was an opponent of Marxism. Uh, not a class opponent, but an intellectual opponent of Marxism. And it took a very long time for Franz Mehring to be convinced of the ideas of Marxism. But when he was finally convinced, he quickly became one of the leading authorities of Marxism internationally. On the other hand, you had figures like Edward Bernstein and Karl Kotsky, which again are names you might be familiar with, who became the staunchest opponents of revolutionary Marxism, and in particular the staunchest opponents of the Bolshevik Party. But unlike Mehring, uh, both Bernstein and Kotsky were actually lifelong members uh, of the Marxist movement. So what I'm trying to say is that, of course, a revolutionary's biography is not unimportant, but it'd be wrong to say that it's the most important thing 
because even the longest serving members of a movement can break when faced with great events. And it's those events, I would argue, which pose the most serious test uh, for any revolutionary. A, a test which I would say Trotsky passed uh, where most others failed. Now, um, there is also attacks on the so-called theory of so-called Trotskyism. Uh, namely Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution, which has been described by Stalin and others as un-Marxist theory, a revisionist theory, a fascist theory, imperialist theory, uh, the whole nine yards. Now, this isn't the place to provide a full overview of the permanent revolution. Again, I think that warrants its own session. But I will mention a few fundamental points on this theory. First off, the term actually wasn't coined by Trotsky, uh, but was borrowed from a text by Marx on the German Revolution of 1848. And in that text, Marx describes the treacherous role of the German bourgeois in relation to the revolution and calls for the working class essentially to take up leadership of the movement in order to carry it forward and to complete the revolution. And he talked about a revolution in permanence, which is where the term comes from. Now, Trotsky, in many ways, built on these ideas from Marx. And he summarized his thoughts in a 1908 text by the name of Results and Prospects, which, again, I'd highly encourage people to read. I think it's maybe the best explanation of the theory of permanent revolution. But the essence of Trotsky's argument is, is essentially this, that in the period in which Trotsky was writing, the capitalists had essentially ceased to play a progressive role. That in other words, the capitalists were unable to carry out the task of what Lenin called the National Democratic Revolution. And what that essentially means is the clearing away of feudalism, the division of the landed estates, uh, the unification of the country, and so on and so forth. And part of the reason for this was that since the time of the great bourgeois revolutions, and namely, the great French Revolution of the late 1700s, the capitalist class had become coalesced with the feudal landlords and with the monarchy uh, to such a degree that essentially they served as one big reactionary block uh, which sort of presided over country after country. And at the same time, since the time of the bourgeois revolutions, the working class had developed as its own independent force with independent interests from the capitalist class. And at a certain stage, the capitalists essentially became more afraid of the workers than they were of the landlords and the kings. And it's for that reason that Trotsky argued that the tasks of the revolution must then inevitably fall to the working class, which he called the only really revolutionary class in society. And what's more, that the workers wouldn't just stop at an arbitrary point when beginning the revolution, you know, stopping at national democratic lines, but would of necessity continue uh, on to socialist actions, nationalizations, the forming of a workers' militia, and so on. Uh, and again, this is why we call it a permanent revolution, because the tasks become permanent, they flow uh, from one into the other. And on top of this, Trotsky argued that such a revolution of course, couldn't be contained to national borders, especially in a backwards country like Russia. 
but that it would eventually need to spread to other countries, and particularly to the more advanced capitalist countries. Now the question is, was Trotsky correct, or was he false on this point? Because if he were false, well then we'd have to throw away this theory, uh, because it wouldn't be useful. It'd be a useless addition uh, to the bibliography of Marxism. But I would say that there's one substantial piece of evidence in Trotsky's favour, uh, and that's the October Revolution itself, which brilliantly and remarkably confirmed, I think, almost every last prediction that Trotsky had made in 1908, that it was the working class in Russia, not the capitalists, that carried out the tasks of the revolution, that carried out a thoroughgoing revolution. And the fact is that whatever the disagreements of Lenin and Trotsky in the past, in 1917, the fact is that Lenin came to this almost exact same conclusion, although he didn't call it the permanent revolution, to be fair. I don't think Lenin was fully acquainted with Trotsky's writings on the question. But the fact is, when Lenin first advanced the slogan of all power to the Soviets, he was, in essence, agreeing with the position and the view taken by Trotsky. And I would challenge anyone to read Trotsky's writings and to read the writings of Lenin from 1917 and to explain how they differ fundamentally from one another. And I think you'd have a hard time because I would argue they express the exact same fundamental idea in relation to the tasks of the Russian Revolution. The fact is that before 1923, there wasn't a soul in the Bolshevik party that was arguing that Trotsky's theory represented anything less than the ess essence of Bolshevism. Uh, and I can prove this. Because in 1921, which was four years after the start of the Russian Revolution, there was a new edition of Trotsky's results and prospects that was published. And you might ask, you know, who would publish this counter-revolutionary text? You know, a text from a known Menshevik. And I'll tell you the answer. That text was published by the Communist International in 1921. Now, you think if it were true that this were an anti-Marxist text, that someone somewhere in the offices of the Communist International would have said something about publishing the seminal work of permanent revolution, making it available to millions of workers across the globe. Well, the truth is that they said absolutely nothing. And why did they say nothing? Because again, fundamentally, Trotsky's book represented the view of the Bolshevik party, plain and simple. And I don't think there's any other way to explain it. And in fact, it wasn't Trotsky, but Stalin who made the decisive break for Marxism. And this was in 1924, when he put forward the idea of socialism in one country. Now, in essence, this was the idea that socialism could be built within Russia alone, without the need for successful revolutions in other countries. Now, it's a simple truth, going back all the way to the time of Marx and Engels, that socialism is either international or it's nothing at all. And that's not for moralistic reasons. It's for purely economic reasons that no country, even the most advanced capitalist country, 
has all of the resources and all of the technique that it needs to compete and to hold out against the powerful capitalist countries encircling it. And it's for this reason why after 1919, Lenin placed so much emphasis and so much attention on the building of the Communist International, and in particular, helping to promote the success of a revolution in Germany, because this was seen, and I would argue correctly, as the only salvation for the Soviet Republic would be a Soviet Republic in Germany, or the Soviet Republic of France, or the Soviet Republic even of Britain. And again, at the time, there wasn't a single soul in the Bolshevik party that ever thought for a second to dispute this view, including Stalin, by the way. In fact, you can read Stalin's writings before 1924. And Stalin also disagreed with the view taken by Stalin after 1924. And uh, I would add that Trot, uh, sorry, Stalin's theory of socialism in one country, which was labeled as this new incredible theory, uh, actually wasn't new at all, but was in, in many ways a plagiarism of an old idea that was taken from the right wing of the German social democracy, uh, specifically the writings of a man by the name of Volmar, who was a right wing social democrat in Germany, who in 1879 uh, wrote a text called The Isolated Socialist State, in which fundamentally he argues the same ideas that you later see Stalin arguing after 1924. And it's worth noting that Volmar actually moved very far to the right in the direction of nationalism uh, later on in his uh, history. But it's important to note that both of these ideas uh, were products of their time and reflected, I would say, a deep pessimism that existed in the working class at the time. In Volmar's case, it was the defeat of the Paris Commune of 1871, while in Stalin's case it was the failure of the German Communist Party to take power in Germany in 1923. So that I think you can say that if Stalin's theory uh, represents a theory at all, then it can really only be called a theory of deep pessimism, uh, just as it was with Volmar. Now, um, I've tried to create a picture, and I apologize for taking so much time, but so many lies means so much time spent rebutting those lies, unfortunately. But I've tried to create a picture of the kind of arguments that were leveled against Trotsky and the left opposition after 1923. But the sad truth is that the bureaucracy couldn't limit itself to just political arguments. Because the fact is that this wasn't just a battle between ideas, but a battle between living forces in the country and within the Bolshevik party. That in order for the bureaucracy to achieve the kind of stability that it needed, it would require the physical liquidation of the left opposition. And so what you saw is that over time, the accusations became more and more ridiculous in order to justify pushing out the left opposition. And in effect, what you had created was a kind of witch hunt atmosphere where left oppositionists would be booed from stages, uh, removed from their positions in office and eventually taken off to labor camps in Siberia, and in many cases executed. And again, you see here a certain parallel with the French Revolution, where during the declining phase of the French Revolution, uh, the Thermidor, you saw leading figures of the revolutionary wing, primarily Robespierre, being labeled by the Thermidorians as counter-revolutionaries, enemies to the state, 
And of course, I think we all know the fate of Robespierre. Uh, he was executed uh, for the simple crime of wanting to maintain the traditions of the great French Revolution. And this witch hunt, I should add, didn't just stop at the left opposition. Because as soon as the left opposition was removed as a threat, the bureaucracy then proceeded to move against other leading members of the Bolshevik party. Until finally, by the end of the 1930s, virtually every leading member of Lenin's party had either been driven to suicide or had been executed. Uh, and not just them, by the way, because uh, sometimes this gets framed as a, a clash of personalities, which is just frankly idiotic and ridiculous. But it wasn't just these men, but also thousands and tens of thousands, actually, of nameless party members, many of whom had led the October Revolution or who had laid their lives on the line to serve in the Red Army and to fight in the Civil War. Many of these individuals were also sent off to camps and executed. So that finally, by the Second World War, the bureaucracy had essentially made itself the master of the situation and had almost succeeded in severing almost every last living memory of the October Revolution, exterminating anyone with even the faintest recollection of the traditions and the heritage of the October Revolution. You know, you sometimes hear from these bourgeois uh, academics that imagine they're, you know, these very intelligent people that Stalin was simply the continuation of Bolshevism, uh, the continuation of Lenin. Uh, of course, it's a very convenient idea for them. But the truth is that there's a river of blood that separates the genuine traditions of Lenin and of Bolshevism uh, and the counter-revolution represented by Stalin and the bureaucracy. Uh, that the Stalinist regime could only consolidate itself through the virtual extermination of Lenin's party. And I use that quite literally, the extermination of the party which had been built by Lenin and the other Bolsheviks. And yet there's never been a proper explanation for why this was the case, either from the bourgeois or from the Stalinists. Now, uh, like I said earlier, what the left opposition represented was above all a continuation of the ideas and the traditions of Lenin uh, during the great and heroic days of the Russian Revolution. And if you want to define this term Trotskyism, uh, which like I said was an artificial term invented by Zinoviev, but if you wanted to define this term, then really the only honest definition I think you could give is that Trotskyism is the ideas of Marx, the ideas of Engels, and the ideas of Lenin continued in the period after Lenin's death. Nothing more, nothing less. It represents the genuine traditions of Marxism, of Leninism, and of the Bolshevik party. But of course that begs the question, if the left, left opposition was correct, why then didn't they win? Why did Stalin win? Why was the left opposition exterminated? And to be honest, that's a fair question. Now the truth is, that Trotsky knew fairly well that the left opposition wasn't likely to succeed, at least not immediately. In fact, uh, you had lots of members within the left opposition who would point to all the things that they had proven correct, you know, the Chinese Revolution, the German Revolution, the British General Strike, and they say, listen, we were correct on every issue. Stalin's been proven decisively wrong. The left opposition is going to grow. 
But Trotsky pointed out that in fact what was more likely uh, was for the opposite to happen. And he explained that because with every defeat of the Stalinist bureaucracy was also a defeat for the world revolution. And that in turn only served to reinforce the pessimism and the exhaustion which served as the material basis for the bureaucracy inside of the Soviet Union. Because the fact is that the bureaucracy had deep material roots. And Trotsky explained that it would take a new upturn in the struggle in order to rejuvenate the movement. Uh, and to allow for the left opposition to grow. And this also helps to explain the triumph of Stalin. You know, I think Chaucey put it quite well when he said that it wasn't Stalin that formed and chose the machine, or created the machine. But he said it was the machine, in fact, which created Stalin, which I think is a very apt way of putting it. So what then was the point of the left opposition? And, and I'll end on this point. Why would they put themselves through this terrible hardship and suffering, if they knew very well that they were going to fail, or quite likely going to fail. And to explain that, I think it's useful to look at the example of another individual, uh, of Zinoviev, um, who, after Lenin and Trotsky, was probably the most recognized figure uh, within the Bolshevik party. And Zinoviev's story, I have to say, is quite a tragic one. It's quite a sad story. Because to be perfectly clear, Zinoviev, as well as Kamenev, Bukharin, were honest revolutionaries. But Zinoviev, in particular, was also a coward. And he also lacked in perspective, which is one area where Trotsky had him beat, I would say. And Zinoviev's view, uh, sorry, Zinoviev's view, was essentially to keep his head down, to submit to Stalin, to wait for conditions to improve, and then once conditions improved, once there was a new upturn in the struggle, to launch onto the scene and to lead a new revolution, to restore democracy and restore genuine socialist traditions to the Soviet Union. Uh, but unfortunately, this didn't work out very well for Zinoviev because, of course, uh, he was eventually executed by the Stalinist regime. And it said that before Zinoviev died, they had to pull him out of his cell, kicking and screaming, covered in tears, essentially a shadow of his former self, and that there was essentially nothing left of this great, proud leader of the October Revolution. And this, I would say, is the real tragedy of a figure like Zinoviev, but not just Zinoviev, many leaders of the Bolshevik party, which is that when they died, it wasn't just their lives which they lost, but their legacies were also lost. And this was in fact the greatest and most horrific accomplishment of the Stalinist bureaucracy. It, that it destroyed its enemies, not just as men and women, but it destroyed them as revolutionaries. It destroyed the very history which they themselves had built. This is the most horrific achievement that they ever made. But Trotsky knew that this was unacceptable, and not because of pride. Again, sometimes this is framed as a personal dispute. But the fact is that Trotsky had no reason whatsoever to be jealous of Stalin. But the reason Trotsky said this was unacceptable was because he knew it would mean severing the living memory and heritage of the October Revolution. And to be perfectly clear, this was the real target 
of the Soviet bureaucracy, to destroy that tradition, to destroy that heritage, and to consolidate its own rule. So Trotsky and the left opposition decided to fight, um, knowing they would lose, in order to preserve the ideas of Lenin and preserve the ideas of the Bolshevik party for the next generation. And we're lucky they did, because if they hadn't, if they'd taken the road of Zinoviev, then we wouldn't have today the rich volume of Marxist literature that was produced by Leon Trotsky before he died, which I would say carry incredible lessons for us as revolutionaries today. And when Trotsky finally was assassinated, which of course was by a Stalinist agent, uh, he didn't die, I would say, in the way Zinoviev had. That Trotsky died, having remained true to his convictions, with the legacy that was left intact, and most importantly of all, with the heritage of the October Revolution preserved. And that is something that for a revolutionary is worth more than all of the state power in the world. So I'll just end with a quote from Trotsky's last written letter shortly before he died, where he says uh, the following. He says, Whatever may be the circumstances of my death, I shall die with an unshaken faith in the communist future. Well, now it's up to us, the living, to take these lessons, to learn from our history, and to make that future a reality. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this alone. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode is General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. It can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.